What's the one common thing around the world? The one experience that is universal to humanity, that wherever you go, you're going to find it. There have been uh, plenty of attempts around the history of, through the history of the world to, to unite mankind in some way or fashion. Uh, you might remember, you might have heard of Esperanto, for example. Uh, this was supposed to be the, the great universal language uh, invented by an ophthalmologist in the late 1800s. He thought that what the, what the world needed above all else was a common language so that we could have peace and understanding amongst us. I wonder whether you've heard of it. Now, it has lasted a surprisingly long amount of time. That There's still somewhere between 60,000 and 2 million people around the world who speak it, which is surprising to me. In fact, I found that there's somewhere between 1 and 2,000 native speakers. That means these are children whose parents have spoken Esperanto to them from day one for them to learn an invented language. Has that united us? Organizations around the world, the United Nations was supposed to be the great experiment in bringing us together and making us one. Currencies, is that done it? Well, no, not really. None of those are common, are universal around the world. No, there is one thing though. There is something that we have in common. Now, I regularly uh, read news sources from at least four continents across the world. It's very easy to do these days with the internet. And I can guarantee you open the news from pretty much any country, anywhere you like. And even without being able to read or understand the language, you will know what they are about. For the one common experience is that of injustice, oppression, wickedness, fickle politics, evil. And then at the very end, a puppy story to make the bitter pill go down. See, what is common to human experience is that we suffer. Oh, we, we dream of utopia. We dream of this world that can one day be, well, can you imagine it? But really we live in the island from the Lord of the Flies. In 2004, and it's been updated since, the Rolling Stone magazine decided to produce the definitive list of the top 500 songs of all time. Now, of course, no one really cares about 437, right? We all care about the top 10, and more than anything, we all care about number one. What is the greatest song of all time? Now, in this case, the list was a little bit of a farce because both of the top two songs somehow included the words Rolling Stone. So number one was uh, Like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan and number two was Satisfaction by the Rolling Stone. So clearly they were just gaming it a little bit. So number three really is the one that matters. What is the greatest song humanity has ever made? The greatest expression of the human soul, our yearnings, our desires, our passions. Well, they chose a very famous song. I, I could just give you the few starting chords and you'd know it. John Lennon's Imagine. I mean, it's, the, the lyrics sound, well, sublime, really. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. 
Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Imagine no possessions, no need for greed or brotherhood or man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. Now you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope one day you'll join us and the world will live as one. That's a beautiful song, isn't it? It's a lovely sentiment. It's that utopia that we grasp for and we wish that we could have. But has it happened? Have we seen it in the world around us? If we just got rid of God, if we removed religion, certainly, but all the things that differentiate us, that separate us, that rip us asunder one from the other. If we just got, got rid of them all, get rid of possessions, get rid of greed and envy, we'd all live this beautiful, peaceful existence, right? This great atheist experiment. Can you imagine it? And I don't mean can you imagine it as in can you picture what it might look like, but I mean can you imagine it as, as in can, can it happen? Could it ever, could we ever achieve that as you look at the world today? Does there seem to be any hope? Now Ecclesiastes really has been this same experiment. The great atheist experiment, if you like. What is the world without God? The world under the sun, with no reference to the one who made it. Well, what is there to find? Is there any way of finding a meaning to our lives, a purpose? And so far, the answer has been a resounding no. Futility. Whatever it is that we seek to aim and to achieve, in the end comes to nothing. For we die and we leave it all behind. Now, it was an experience, uh, sorry, an experiment, the great atheist experiment, 3,000 years ago was when Solomon attempted it. And really what we've seen so far has been dead on to our experience. I take it there's been no surprises to us. Now, in today's passage, as we consider Ecclesiastes 4 through to the second half of chapter 7, Solomon looks a bit more outward. So far, he's been trying in his own life to discover this meaning and this purpose. And in this passage, we're going to explore as he looks to others, as he looks to other circumstances in the world, what can he see? What can he find? Is there an answer? Is there something that will take this life beyond futility? And I wonder as we explore it, whether you might keep an eye out to see whether you can spot the progress that we've made. This was, remember, 3,000 years ago. Surely, surely. We are now better off. Well, as Solomon looks at the world, he sees a whole range of things. And the first thing that he sees is oppression. Now, I'm going to be reading parts of this again. And this we see in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 in the first three sentences. Again, Solomon says, I observed all the acts of oppression being done under the sun. Look at the tears of those who are oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. Power is with those who oppress them. They have no one to comfort them. So I commended the dead who have already died, more than the living who are still alive. 
But better than either of them is the one who has not yet existed, who has not seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. Such is the nature of the world as Solomon sees it. Such is the oppression that happens every day, everywhere. That he goes so far as to say, the best of all is to not even have been born to observe this wickedness. This is the reality of the world. People are victims of those who wield power, of the desire for power that drives really all of us at some point or other to trample on others. It's all the way through the book. I mean, there's examples everywhere about it. Let me show you just one more from chapter 5 and verse 8 and see that there, he sees, amongst all the other forms of oppression, economic oppression. He says, if you see oppression of the poor and perversion of justice and righteousness in the province, don't be astonished at the situation because one official protects another official and higher officials protect them both. The profit of the land is taken by all. The king is served by the field. It's always been the way. The rich exploit the poor. And it's so true today. The, the, whether it's the slavery of the Uyghurs in China, whether it's the sweatshops in Bangladesh, whether it's the constant discussion about the minimum wage in the United States, whatever it might be, the countries where the elite go shopping for fashion and toys while the majority of the population starves. Mind you, it's not only overseas either. Did you hear about the businessman who not long after the Bali bombings flew over to Bali, a very wealthy man, and he went not to see if he could be of assistance, but because he was convinced that real estate prices would drop and that he could go and buy a whole bunch of resorts that in time he could turn a profit on. What does Solomon see in the world? He sees oppression. He sees envy. Again in chapter 4 and verse 4. I saw, he says, that all labour and all skilful work is due to one person's jealousy of another. The greatest things we ever accomplish are because one person looked at someone else and went, Ah, oh, I want what they have. I want to do better. I want to be better. Why is it that we will happily talk about every aspect of our working lives? We'll talk about what sort of work we have to do, what our bosses are like, which colleagues we hate. We'll talk about anything, how much leave we have, how much sick leave, the conditions that we get given, whether we get a company car or not, how much superannuation is included in our package. We'll talk about anything except for our salary. We, 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 you will never hear somebody say, oh, well, I earn. Now, of course, there's the Aussie tall poppy syndrome and we don't want to paint too big a picture of ourselves. Maybe we're on a good pay packet. We don't really want to make other people feel bad. But perhaps, and I wonder if this isn't a little bit closer to home, we're simply scared that we would find out others are paid more than us. We would be envious. We would be jealous. Have you ever seen the TV show, The Gruen Transfer? 
Uh, it's an ABC show where they explore the world of advertising and marketing. It, it's a fascinating show. If you've never watched it, go and check it out. Uh, they, they get some really smart people in. And the best thing about the show is how honest they are. They open up and they talk truly, right? Right in this ad, we are targeting these particular things. We've done market research to know that this works and this doesn't. And so we do this. We're, right, the one company might own multiple brands of the same product because they all sell better. And, and it, it's a fascinating, fascinating show. And often they will talk about how they play on envy and greed. These are things that sell. One of them, Todd Sampson, at one point, uh, said very insightfully that when we talk about these oppressive sweatshops, it's not just about corporate greed. I mean, it is, but it's not just about corporate greed. It's also about every one of us because they mirror our consumption. Solomon looks at the world and he sees envy. We want it and we want it now. He sees oppression, he sees envy, he sees loneliness. Chapter 4, down at verse 7. Again, I saw futility under the sun. There is a person without a companion, without even a son or brother. And though there is no end to all his struggles, his eyes are still not content with riches. Who am I struggling for, he asks, and depriving myself of good things? This too is futile and a miserable task. Now we've seen in previous chapters that one of the saddest things is no matter how hard you work and how rich you get, in the end you're just going to leave it all to somebody else. Well here is something even sadder. The person who has no one to leave it to. To be alone. Spend your days working hard, accumulating riches and wealth and good things just to have no one in your life. Loneliness. Did you know there's, there's research happening at the moment where it seems to be the case that loneliness rivals obesity and smoking in its mortality effects? It's, it, it, it's an astonishing thought that being alone is just as bad for your health as extreme overweight and all the impact that has on your body or smoking and the destruction that that causes. In Australia, right now, one in four people say they are going through a period of loneliness. One in two say that they will feel lonely at least one day every week. What Solomon saw is no news to us. We are more connected than ever before and we are lonelier because of it Solomon sees oppression, he sees envy, he sees loneliness, he sees a lack of joy come over to chapter 6 and verse 1 here is a tragedy I have observed under the sun and it weighs heavily on humanity, God gives a person riches, wealth and honour so that he lacks nothing of all he desires for himself but God does not allow him to enjoy them. Instead, a stranger will enjoy them. Have it all, 
but can't enjoy it. Too busy gaining it all to ever stop and enjoy. And man, I'll tell you what, if ever there was a description of us, this is it. We have luxury fever. We have to pursue these things that, that, that for a previous generation really were luxuries. And all of a sudden for us, they are necessities. I have to, have to, have to have them. They are essential. We have everything. And man, we are bored. I mean, can you imagine for a moment just going for a week without your mobile phone? Going for a month without the internet. Please don't do that. It'll make it hard to get to church, but right. Going for a year without Netflix or Stan or Amazon Prime, whatever, whatever your fix of entertainment is. Luxuries beyond the kings of the past. And we're bored. No, he sees all of this. Solomon also then, as he looks at the world, it's not over yet. He sees that politics are fickle. Back in chapter 4 and verse 13 this time, there is a sickening tragedy I have seen under the sun. Wealth kept by its owner. To, sorry, that's chapter 5. Let's go back to chapter 4 and verse 13. That makes more sense. Better is a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer pays attention to warnings. For he came from prison to be king even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who move about under the sun follow a second youth who succeeds him. There is no limit to all the people who were before them, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. This is futile in a pursuit of the wind. Right, the king himself used to be a poor man in prison, became king and forgot about it all. Reigns how he wants to, thinks that he will be king forever, but tomorrow there's another youth that comes along and they all pursue him. No, not even that. Rulers do not give you stability either. You see, worst of all, in the midst of all the bad that Solomon saw in the world, worst of all was this. Nothing ever changes. Nothing happens at all. We all return to the start of the song and we all sing along like before. It's all the same over and over and over again. Chapter 6 and verse 10, he says, Whatever exists was given its name long ago. And it is known what mankind is. But he is not able to contend with the one stronger than he. For when there are many words, they increase futility. What is the advantage for mankind? For who knows what is good for anyone in life in the few days of his futile life that he spends like a shadow? Who can tell anyone what will happen after him under the sun? Whatever exists has existed long ago. Whatever you think is new already was... I mean, okay, sure, we, we have some new technologies, right? We have some cool stuff today that people didn't used to have. We have graphite and... Uh, and carbon fibers, and we put rockets in the moon, and we're, we're spending, sending people to Mars. Sure, we can do cool things like that. But the reality is that even with these technologies, everything we do still has already been done before. Nothing changes. Our world today is still marked by oppression, by injustice, by greed, by evil, by suffering, by loneliness. Since 3,000 years have passed since Solomon's experiment. And the world today 
I think he would recognise it. Now, look, Solomon's not all bad news. Okay, he, he does say that there are some things that are good. And we'll come to them in a moment. But see, you think about the world right now as it is. Have we fixed it? Have our systems and what we've pursued somehow undone the evil that Solomon observed? I mean, what are, we, we, have, we have capitalism now. Yay! Western democracy. Aren't they great? Have they solved the problems? Well, hard to say, isn't it? You go back to 1970, and in 1970, 1% of the world's population owned 13% of the world's wealth. Today, 1% of the world's population owns 40% of the world's wealth. Now, look, I'm not against rich people, right? Good on you. You've worked hard, probably. Made your money. But as far as oppression and injustice go, I suspect that that's a large reason of how they made so much money. Well, is socialism the answer then? We need to have the workers seize control of the means of production and distribute the wealth evenly. Right, because, I mean, the, the, the socialist countries in the, in the world, they've done really well, haven't they? There's no injustice in them. There's no oppression and evil and wickedness. and oh, they're, they're all role models to us. Russia and China and Cuba and North Korea. I mean, that we... No. Well, what about... Doing good then? What about movements? What about the, the live aid concerts and the make poverty history movement? And <laughs> do, do you remember them? They, they were a thing, remember? They certainly haven't made an impact. It's so telling that the two deadliest plagues in the world today not COVID-19 and everything that goes with that. The two deadliest plagues in the world today. Famine and obesity. On the one hand, people are starving because they don't have enough food. On the other hand, people are dying because they eat too much. Imagine... Imagine a world like that. John Lennon's utopia. I, honestly, I can't. Not that I can't picture it. I, I, I can understand the concept of what the world might look like in these sort of circumstances, but I can't see it happening. 3,000 years have passed and the world today is still exactly the same as it was then. Now, yes, some things are better than others. Right? Solomon's not blind to that. It is better to be content than to live with envy. It is better to have companionship rather than loneliness. It is better to live in the present rather than dwelling on the past. It is better to enjoy what you have than to not enjoy what you have. In fact, there's one thing that is better than all of those. You come to chapter 7 and verse 2. I want to show you this one. He says, and we really need to pause and take stock of this. He says, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting since that is the end of all mankind and the living should take it to heart. We are the living. We need to take this to heart. Strangely, one of the best places we can go is a funeral. Our parties are more fun. <laughs> of course, they're much more enjoyable. 
Parties are really great at dulling the pain and lulling us into a sense of security. But funerals are where we are confronted with our own mortality, where we stop and we lift our eyes to see the truth. See, where do these problems come from? Why is our world marked by this conflict? You, you, you see soccer parents fighting on sidelines. You see nations invading each other at every level of our existence. There is evil. Why is it that with the wealth of the world exploding, there is still famine? Why is it impossible, impossible to see John Lennon's imagined world ever coming to pass? You need an answer to that. For the sake of your own life and for the sake of whatever impact you are going to have on society. If you are participating in the great atheist experiment, in living the life in the world under the sun, no reference to God, no reference to... You need to have an answer to that. And so far, I haven't seen one. No, what we need more than anything else is a word from God. We need not a, not a world without God, life under the sun, but Him to tell us, to speak into us. Now I want to share with you, by, by, by way of concluding and, and kind of having this word, from Mark chapter 7. Mark is one of the biographies that were written about Jesus. And in this part of Mark's biography, Jesus was speaking to the religious leaders of the day. And they were trying to kind of work out a similar question. How can you be acceptable to God? For us, morality perhaps comes into the question. For them, it was knowing that God is unhappy with us, knowing that there is a judgment to come because of our wickedness, what's the answer? And they were discussing about the rituals, the religious stuff, right? Should we wash this certain way? Should we eat certain foods? Whatever it might be. Jesus said this to them. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within... Out of people's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and defile a person. The problem is not a lack of education, limited technology. The problem is not endemic inequality or no the problem is us the the problem is you the problem is our hearts the world is an absolute mess because of who we are you see if you reject the source of everything that is good is it any wonder that what is left is wickedness? If you reject the source of life, is it any wonder that what is left is death? If we reject the source of light, is it any wonder that what is left is darkness? The problem is our hearts. And because of that, a judgment is coming. 
God's not going to leave our wickedness unpunished. No, he's going to judge and that judgment will see us condemned. How do we fix it? Well, 3,000 years ago, really, there was no solution for Solomon. All he could do was trust God, hope that somehow God was going to do something about it. See, the great atheist experiment of today that continues unabated, it continues with no solution. It, it, it grasps at this or that or the other thing. Maybe I can make this work. Maybe, but it hasn't worked. No, see, what we need more than anything else is a heart transplant and forgiveness. We need a new start, the past dealt with. And then the source of all that wickedness, ourselves, transformed. Now, this is what Jesus came for. This is why the Christian message is so crucial. For Jesus died. It's a strange thing that that is the message, but that is the message. Jesus died. He was condemned. He paid that we might have a new start, the past dealt with, the condemnation already falling on him. And having been brought to new life, Jesus was resurrected. Eternal life was given to him. He now offers what we also need, not just a new start from the past, but a new start for the future, a new heart. A transformed self that is capable of and wants to live God's way again. It really is a very simple solution. It's very elegant in how God has done it. Jesus done everything for us. He undoes all of the depressing bad news of Ecclesiastes by the simple act of his death. By the offering of life. You need to know Jesus. As you look at the world around you, as you try and imagine John Lennon's world, and I reckon as you fail to get there, you need to have an answer. You need to have a solution. And the Bible says there is only one, and that is Jesus. Now, that also means that if you are somebody who follows Jesus, who has trusted him for the salvation that we need, for that forgiveness and that new start, then please don't go looking for solutions elsewhere. Don't go through life thinking and latching on to systems, whether it's politics or economics, whether it's somehow doing social work or trying to transform circumstances or people. They're all good things, by the way. I'm not saying that they're bad in and of themselves, but please don't think any one of them is going to fix the problem. What our world desperately needs is the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so whatever it is that you've poured yourself into in your life, would you make sure that you're pouring yourself into the spread of that good news, that you diligently pray, that you diligently hope in Jesus, and that you diligently speak? Because without him, all that is left is meaningless. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your solution. 
We thank you that the world, as, Ecclesi- as Solomon saw it in Ecclesiastes, the world under the sun, wasn't all that there is. But rather that you have brought hope and light and life and love back into our world. We thank you that Jesus' death pays for our sin, for our evil, for our rejection of you. We thank you that the past can be wiped completely clean. We thank you that the Lord Jesus offers now transformation, the beginning of a new life that is able and desires to please you. Father, if there's anyone watching this, if there's anyone considering these words and reflecting on them and realising that they need Jesus, would you work in them to give them boldness and courage to take that step, to, to come to you and say, I trust what you have done. And Father, for those who have entrusted themselves to Jesus, would you please remove from us the desires that marked that old life, that we would not oppress others, that we would not be full of envy, that we would not be seeking out of selfishness our own good, that we would be good at caring for the lonely. And Father, we ask this because we are your people now. We want to live your ways and we want you to be seen in us. Amen.